We're glad you're here, and we thank you for uh, sticking with us through all this time. It's been a tough year, but the Lord is bringing us through it. And I just wanted to share a message with you today called Chosen Over and Over. And you've heard the adage or the uh, idea before that something is, what is value? Value is what something's willing to pay for, someone's willing to pay for something. Isn't that true? Uh, you know, you, you hear that all the time and when mortgage lenders and people selling real estate or buying real estate, sometimes you apply for a mortgage and the mortgage company comes back and says, well, the house isn't worth that. And you're trying to sell a house and you're frustrated because, well, they offered me that. And you're thinking, well, wait a second, if they're willing to pay for it, somebody's willing to pay that, isn't it worth that? And isn't the home worth that? It becomes a frustrating thing because that's what we've learned over the years in our lives is that something is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it. And uh, <clears throat> recently, Kobe Bryant, a rookie card of Kobe Bryant, the basketball player, sold for $1.8 million a, a basketball card, just a little piece of cardboard with a picture on the, on the front of it. Can you imagine that? Uh, $1.8 million. I guess it was in pristine condition. It was a fairly rare card, but somebody paid $1.8 million for it. I like to watch uh, the Barrett-Jackson Auto Auction on TV. Any of you like to watch that? I enjoy that a lot. And uh, some of the prices people are willing to pay for some of these vehicles. And, uh, you know, really, <clears throat> if you think about it, vehicles just steel and rubber and vinyl and leather. <laughs> but uh, put together, they look like a work of art. And uh, I, I like to wash and shine and polish my car. And sometimes Kelly will tell me, well, it's just, it's just a car. It's just a car. And uh, we just don't understand, but we're willing to pay. If you watch those auto auctions, sometimes two, $300,000 for vehicles, and sometimes even more, the rarest ones. And, uh, and shoes as well are the shoes that we wear. Uh, I, 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 like, I grew up in the era of Jordans, wearing Jordans. And uh, my wife, you, you, would, you would buy new shoes and you try to keep them clean and kelly always says well shoes are for uh wearing they're gonna get dirty and no you don't understand you gotta keep them clean and even to this day actually for people that did keep those original jordans clean you can sell them for high dollars now people collectors will buy them for for high high dollars and they're remaking the old ones now and they're selling for high cost. And of course, you can probably understand where I'm going with this. If something is worth what someone is willing to pay for it, what are we worth? Because we know that God paid for us with his son. And, you know, it, a lot of times we have this idea that this plan or this payment was sort of a knee-jerk reaction from the Lord. It was something that God kind of came up with last minute when sin entered the world and and all of a sudden he had to, to panic and, and find a solution. But if we read scripture carefully, we find that that's actually not the case. God didn't come up with this, la this plan last minute. He came up with it 
before the world ever began. And so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, I want to share this with you. Ephesians chapter 1, this plan came to be long before creation ever began. Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So there's a few things here, and, and a lot of it just is Paul's greeting to his church, to his church here, and was the way that he addressed many of his churches, and probably in his sermons as well. But there's a few things we need to pack, unpack from this. Number one is that it says he chose us in him. He chose us, and we said the, the title of our message today was Chosen Over and Over. Remember that? And so, chosen in him. What does it mean to be chosen in him? Chosen in him. Who is the him? Jesus is the him here in this, this passage. That's right. Jesus, so chosen in Christ. What does that mean? Well, let's go to the point number two that we need to pick up. When were we chosen in him, according to this verse? Before the foundation of the world. So before creation, we were chosen in Christ. We were chosen in Jesus. And then the third thing is that term in him. So here's, if we put those three concepts together, we, we find the, this out, that God decided that he would dedicate Jesus to our purpose. He would dedicate Jesus to our purpose. Now, what do I mean by our purpose? For our sake. So before the world began, God decided that he would dedicate Jesus for our sake. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? God knew what was going to happen and what creation would cost him. Yet he created us anyway. <clears throat> God knew what we would do, but he still said, let there be light. You know, John picks up on that very theme because in, in John's gospel, the first thing he says is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then he goes on, he says, in him was light. And that light was the life of man, or him was life, and that life was the light of man. And what we need to understand is that John is picking up on that very theme right there. That when God said, let there be light, he actually was referring to being chosen in Christ Jesus who is the light of creation. What we need to really grasp is what John is telling us and what Paul is telling us is that creation itself was an act of grace. You understand that concept, yes or no? God knew what we would do because God has foreknowledge, right? Now, just because he knows something ahead of time doesn't mean he makes it happen. But what we need to recognize 
is that it was an act of grace because God had the foreknowledge to know what mankind would do ahead of time, and he knew what it would cost him. So before we ever did anything, before any man ever even breathed a breath, God decided to pour his grace out on humanity. Now that's pretty incredible, isn't it? So creation itself, when God said, let there be light, God was dedicating his son to the purpose of mankind. He made a promise to the human race before the world started. We were chosen even before creation. Wow, isn't that amazing? Somebody better say amen to that. I shouldn't have to prompt you to say this stuff. This is pretty incredible. God chose us, and, and so that totally blows the idea that we can perform our way to God's mercy and love and favor. We can somehow do something to earn it. God already gave it before we were ever alive. And so he, he promised us his son before creation. And the thing is, though, is, you know, I don't know how God's timing works and how eternity works and, and, and how God can be eternal and we're finite and we have time and God doesn't. I don't know how all that works. So I don't know how the timelines match up. But I do know that God still had to go through with it, didn't he? He still had to go through with it. It's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to do this, and I know what it will cost me. And then it's another thing to actually do it. And when, we, when God created Adam, God was choosing us again. It's one thing to have a plan. It's another thing to execute that plan. It's one thing to say, I'm going to buy a house. It's another thing to take out a mortgage and sign the papers. And so God did create Adam. And, and let's go to that next verse, Kevin, if we can. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. <clears throat> then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now that's truly an amazing thing. The intimacy that this takes for God to leave heaven... He could have just from heaven, like he said, let there be light, and there was light. He could have said, let there be a guy, and there was a guy, there was a man. He, he could have done that, but he didn't. He came down from heaven in the form of the second person of the Godhead. I believe that his name eventually became Jesus. He came down and he formed a man out of the clay of the earth. He sculpted, he hand sculpted the one who would cost him his life. And that verse says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And what's really powerful and interesting is that, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, the very last thing it says about him is that he breathed out the spirit. He breathed out the breath of life and he died. So when he breathed the breath of life into Adam, it predestined the fact that he would have to breathe out the breath of life on Calvary's cross. Isn't that amazing? 
as he's forming Adam's hands in the clay, it means his hands are going to be nailed to a cross. And the same with his feet. And can you imagine what's going through his mind? He knows because he foreknows these things. He knows these things ahead of time. He knows what it means. He knows what it's going to cost him. He knows that as he forms a human hand, that means his hand is going to be nailed to a cross. As he, he forms a human foot, that, that means his foot is going to have to be nailed to the cross. And as he's intimately forming Adam, becoming close to him and, and knowing every inch of him, that means that he is going to have to be separated, ripped apart from his own father. Talk about chosen. And, and the question is, you know, why did he go through with it? It wasn't just that he loved Adam, but he knew that you and I were all in the DNA of Adam and Eve. So God loved you and me enough to make Adam. God loved you and I, you and I enough to save Adam. Because had God saved, not saved Adam, you and I would not be here today. So God, yes, of course he loved Adam, but he also loved you and me. And then we come to the next point of where we were chosen. Because he chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us when he formed Adam and gave him life. And he chose us when he saved Adam. Isn't that true? He didn't have to go through with it. He could have said, nope, that's it right there. I'm not going through with this. You know, I, I gave them a chance. I gave them life. I formed him. I gave him the breath of life. But he sinned. I've changed my mind. I'm not going through with this. But he affirms the promise he made to mankind before the foundation of the world. You are chosen in me. He reaffirms that when Adam sinned. And Genesis 3.15 says this, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Talking to the serpent here. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head. And that word bruise is actually better translated crush. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you've heard me talk about this before. The greatest illustration of this passage is a, a picture I saw and it was just the feet of Jesus hanging on the cross. And uh, it was a picture of the, the nail right through the top of Jesus' foot. And the nail going through the top of Jesus' foot and behind his feet, smushed to the cross was a dead snake hanging. You see, yeah, Satan bruised Jesus' heel because that nail went through the top of his foot through his heel. But when Jesus gave his life, it crushed the head of the serpent. It defeated him. He's powerless. And so uh, God affirms this promise to Adam and Eve after they sinned. So we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen at creation because God went through with what he promised. And then we were chosen after sin again. God said, yes, I, I'm affirming this promise again to save all of us, to save mankind, to be with them. And then we come down to another major event. You see, ah, 
We just don't learn, do we? So after Adam and Eve lose paradise, it doesn't take very long, and the generations of the earth uh, begin to become more and more wicked and separate themselves from God, separate themselves from the Father. And they become more and more selfish and self-serving and worship themselves and their own creation. And we get to the days of Noah, which wasn't all that long in the grand scheme of things from Adam and Eve. And <clears throat> we get to that point where God says, I'm kind of sorry I ever made him. Sadly, Genesis 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. I think it's getting to that point again, isn't it? I think it's getting to that point, sadly. And, you know, it's not because God has done anything. It's because man has chosen to turn its back on God chosen to stop listening to God, chosen itself and its own selfish passions above God and what God has to offer. And so, like any good parent, what has to happen is that God allows us to suffer the consequences for our decisions, hoping that those consequences will teach us to come back to what's good and right. Isn't that true? If you're a parent that always shields your child from the consequences of their behavior, you are not parenting very well. You are not preparing your child to live in the real world. Because God allows us many times, not always, but many times to suffer the consequences for our decisions. And that's the world that we're living in right now. God has just said, okay, if you'd like to make that decision, it's going to lead to this, 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 and this. But I trust in your own free will. I believe, I, I, I'm, I'm putting faith in you to exercise your own free will. And hopefully that own free will, and you'll learn from your mistakes, and I'm going to pour out my love and pour out my grace, and hopefully you will see that my way, my kingdom, stands for something much better than the consequences that the choices of man have to offer and, and sadly we're getting to this point and it got to that point in Noah's day just not that long after creation really every thought of his heart was evil continually next verse verse 6 and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart now do you think it's because he didn't love man no it says that he's grieved to his heart and I don't believe that that's because God was feeling sorry for himself I think he was feeling sorry for the condition of mankind. Uh, he, he intimately formed Adam with his own hands and put him together with his love and selflessness and goodness, and now mankind is evil continually. Its thoughts are evil continually. So God says, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, oh, you skipped a little, bit, a little bit too fast there, thank you. And animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Next verse, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I've heard this always preached as if Noah <coughs> lived a righteous life. 
Noah was a good guy, and he probably was a good guy, but found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I've always heard it interpreted as God was looking around for somebody that was worthy to save. Is anybody worthy to save? And actually, if we look at what the Bible says, is anybody worthy to save? No, the Bible says there, are, there is none righteous, no, not one. So I like to interpret this verse differently based on the context of the rest of Scripture. I believe that Noah looked to God and saw grace in God's eyes. It wasn't that God was looking around saying, who's worthy of my grace? It's that Noah looked to God and found grace in God's eyes. Isn't it like what it is with us? We, we're looking around this world and we see the Savior and we say, thank you, Jesus, for being who you are. You're a God worth worshiping. I want to live life according to your will and not mine. And, and, and that's, that's when that faith relationship starts. And so here's Noah and he looks at the face of the Lord. He sees grace and he, he has a relationship with the Lord. So God saves him. And then he says to him, he says this to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives. We know the story of Noah's ark, and they're saved. Now, you see that word establish? It's a really interesting word, establish. Uh, usually when we think of establish, we sort of think of a word that means starting something new. I'm going to establish something here, right, as if it's, starting something new. But interestingly enough, that word is not best understood as starting something new. In the original language, it's actually better translated affirm or confirm. So it says, I will affirm my covenant with you. I will confirm my covenant with you. So if you read it that way, it's not that God is starting something new with Noah. It's that he's affirming something that's already been established. Are you with me, yes or no? He's confirming something that's already been established. Now, what would he be confirming that was already established? We've been talking about it this whole message. What is it? That we are chosen in Christ. Remember Paul said, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Isn't that true? And so what God did with Adam was nothing new. Isn't that right? God just affirmed or confirmed the fact that we are chosen in Christ through Adam. Confirmed it in the creation. He confirmed it when he told him uh, about grace after the fall and here he's doing the same thing with noah he says to him he says to him i am affirming or confirming what i said before the foundation of the world and notice god could not have kept that promise if he had wiped out noah too isn't that right god would have broken his promise and so god kept his promise by saving noah and again, I ask the same question. Why did God save Noah? Was it just because God loved Noah? No. 
He also loved you and me. You and I were in Noah's DNA. And so God knew that to save Noah meant to save you and me too. And so he affirms or confirms that covenant, that promise that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so we continue. We go to Genesis chapter 18 and uh, 17, I should say. And, the ne- and uh, it's really interesting that the next major event in Scripture is really the, the coming on the scene of Abraham or a- Abram. And he left his homeland and God made a lot of promises to him. And, and uh, so a lot of times we think of the covenant. Oh, by the way, let me back up and let's talk about this word covenant for just a second. Covenant. What is a covenant? An agreement. But usually with our agreements, both parties are bringing something to the table. Isn't that true? That's the way our contracts work. If I say I'm buying a house, or I'm buying your house, you're bringing the house, and I'm bringing my money. That's the contract, right? But let me ask you this. If this covenant was affirmed before the foundation of the world, are we bringing anything to the table? We aren't, are we? We couldn't. It was established before the foundation of the world. And that's what makes a covenant different than a contract. A covenant, a biblical covenant, is is a promise from a greater party to do something for a lesser party. That's what a covenant is. And this covenant, as we've seen, was established before the world began. We bring nothing to the table here. Isn't that incredible? We are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were chosen at creation. We were chosen after Adam and Eve sinned. We were chosen in Noah. And here we're going to see we were chosen in Abraham as well. So Abraham has this relationship with the Lord and God makes a promise to him. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Remember that. Put that in the back of your mind. Next verse, Kevin, please. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Next verse. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will, bam, there it is again, what? Establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's the same language that he had with Noah. Established, it's, it's, it's affirm or confirm. I will confirm or affirm my covenant with you. So in other words, God is going to continue the promise through Abraham. And now we see the role of the Jewish race of Israel much differently, don't we? Their purpose and their purpose alone was to continue the promise that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world It was their job to spread that message to the whole world. That's what the covenant with Israel was all about. 
It wasn't about doing this right or not doing that or being this way or not being that way or being a pure people or not being a pure people. Their job was to perpetuate the everlasting covenant. That was it. And they made it a whole lot of other things, didn't they? And that's why the Bible says a better covenant's coming. And it wasn't because of the promise. It wasn't the covenant problem. It was the people. It's what they made of it. They made it all this other stuff. When God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Keep that in the back of your mind. Many nations and uh, it's your job, your offspring's job, to tell the world that they've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now what does it mean to be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world? Here's the easiest way that I've thought to, to, to explain this, okay? I do not believe that everyone is quote or unquote lost until they receive salvation from Jesus. I don't think scripture supports that. It's almost like saying, okay, Jesus, you're over there and I'm over here and I'm utterly and completely lost and I have to somehow find my way to you. When People say things like this, when I found Jesus, Right? When I got saved. I don't think those are biblical terms. They're not correct doctrinal terms. Because it's like saying, I'm doing something in order to come over to Jesus and take that gift. Here's the, the easiest way that I've figured out to explain this and help people understand it. When you are born, or maybe even when you're conceived, you are inserted into a plan that will save you if you let it. Everybody, every human being who's ever walked the face of the earth, when they're either conceived or born, I don't know how that works, that's up to God, that they are inserted into a plan that will save them if they let it. In other words... To not be saved, you have to reject it. Stubbornly reject salvation. And, and so we say, well, if it's that good, if it's that good news, and if it's that easy, why do we have people rebelling? It's because the world is as it is, and here's why. It's not, I don't think, because God is pulling back. It's because to reject strong conviction you have to rebel in equal measure. And the best way that I've come up with this is when you know maybe you're arguing with your spouse and that conviction settling in in your heart and you know that you're, you should just apologize or at least shut up, but you can't, you can't let it go. You can't let it go. And so, you know, that conviction's there, that, that convincing is there that maybe you're wrong or maybe you should at least shut up, but you've got to say that one more thing. You see, you have to rebel in equal measure to the conviction in order to fight off the conviction. And I think that's what a lot of people in the world are doing. And the problem is the more often you do that, the harder your heart gets. 
the more used to rebelling in equal measure you get. So, God established His promise, His his covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants. And then we get down to the book of Daniel. And Daniel says something really interesting. This is a prophecy about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. And I'm not crazy about the way the ESV translates this. Uh, King James, New King James does it a little bit better. But this is speaking of Jesus. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's a lot of other details we're not going to get into today. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, does anybody else, you have a different translation of the Bible in your hand? If you do, open up to that. And I'm, I'm curious if you have King James or New King James or RSV. Instead of, and he shall make, what does your Bible say? Affirm. Confirm. Confirm. Isn't that interesting? What have we been saying? The word establish means. Confirm or affirm. Isn't that right? So a lot of the other Bible translations use the word confirm. Now, let me give you a little hint. I love the ESV, but there's certain aspects of prophecy that our evangelical friends got in and they chose, not that the words are wrong, because make isn't technically wrong, but they got in here and they sort of used words that sort of fit their prophetic ideology a little bit. So you have to be a little bit careful with any biblical translation. But uh, it's because of who they see is in this verse, and I don't want to get into that right now. But you see that this, this is about Jesus, and your scriptures, your translation said affirm. And what do we say that word establish means? Affirm or confirm. So what Daniel is saying is that Jesus, or the coming Messiah, would affirm or confirm the covenant with many for one week. So what he's saying is that through Jesus, God will affirm the promise he made before the foundation of the world. And did he do it for one week through Jesus? Now, a week in Bible prophecy is seven years. Did he do that in Jesus for seven years? We say, no, not exactly. Because Jesus' ministry was only three and a half. Well, if we were to go on... And read that verse a little bit more, we'd see that he says he's cut off in the middle of the week. He'll be cut off. And so let's just stop there for a second. Did God affirm the everlasting promise in Jesus for three and a half years? Yes or no? He sure did. And after three and a half years, was he cut off on the cross? just like the prophecy said. And then there's three and a half more years of that week. How did he do it? Through the apostles. Through the apostles. Remember he said, I will, God said to Abraham, I will affirm or confirm my covenant with your people. And Daniel says, well, yeah, there's a time limit to this. If you guys don't understand that your role is to tell the world about their everlasting covenant, we're going to have to go a different direction. And so at the end of this three and a half years, remember what Jesus said? Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says that to the apostles. 
And their mission for the, for the first three and a half years after Jesus went back to heaven was to the Jews. Because God had made a promise to them. He made a promise to us through them. They were to be the prophets to the world, right? And so God says, go to them first. And at the end of the three and a half years, does anybody know what significant event happened? Stephen was stoned. And if you read that, uh, that account in Acts, you can look this up at home on, uh, later, the, the Bible literally says that they stopped their ears. Ba, 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 I'm not listening to this. So Stephen is preaching about the gospel, the very thing that they're supposed to take to the world that's part of this everlasting promise that was made before the foundation of the world. They're supposed to take the good news of the gospel to the world. Stephen is preaching it to them, and they stop their ears, and they can't listen to it anymore, and they kill him. It was all part of this Daniel 9 prophecy. But I want to I rewind just a little bit and go back to the life of Jesus because something really powerful takes place just before the crucifixion. And uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's preaching and he's teaching. And for the most part, his followers to this point have been Jews or Samaritans. And Samaritans were partly Jewish. So they've been Jews and Samaritans. And then toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he's in Jerusalem and he's preaching, and something significant happens. And that's where we pick up John chapter 12. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some what? Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Let's stop right there for just a second. These are non-Jews seeking out Jesus Christ. You following that, yes or no? Non-Jews. Now, why is this significant? Somebody tell me. Why is this significant? I hear murmuring. Say it, say it louder, don't be afraid. Why is this significant? It was for everyone. What promise did God make to Abraham? I'll make you the father of many nations. All the nations of the world through you will be blessed. And so now we don't just have the Jewish nation or the Samaritan nation. We have Greeks. We have Greeks coming. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Next verse, Kevin. It says... There we go. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus knows right now that the cross is about to happen. And what is the event that makes him know that the cross, cross is about to happen? You just read it. The Greeks, people from other nations, are coming to seek out Jesus. And so when that happens, he recognizes right then and there, this is a fulfillment of God's promise, his everlasting promise that he made before the foundation of the world, that he made to know, after sin, that he made to Noah, that he made to Abraham. He literally said to Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You'll be the father of many nations. And now the other nations are coming to listen to him. 
and he sees that as a direct fulfillment. Can you imagine what this must have been like? Such mixed emotions for Jesus. Because now he knows, I mean, yes, he's the Son of God, but can you imagine some of the doubts that must have come up in his mind throughout his ministry? Seeing the day come a little bit closer and closer to his crucifixion. Can you imagine how affirming this must have been to him? The promise that the Father's always made is finally fulfilled. There it is. I can't believe it. It's all true. It's true. But at the same time realizing, if that's true, that means my time here is short. Such utterly mixed emotions. And then, you know, the sins of the world, not long after that, the sins of the world started coming down on the, the heart, the mind, the body of Jesus. And he found his way to Gethsemane. He's sweating great drops of blood from the stress. Stress of the sins of the world coming down on him. And we're chosen again, aren't we? Because it was one thing for Jesus to, to, to live his life. It was another thing when the reality of the sins of the world started to come upon him for him to go through with it. At any point, Jesus could have said, no, I'm not doing this. And so the sins of the world are being laid upon him and it's weighing him down and he's sweating great drops of blood and he chooses us again when he says, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And not only are the sins of the world on him now, he, the next, not too many hours later, he's arrested and dragged to courts. He's beaten and he's flogged and he's mocked and he's spit on and all sorts of other atrocities. At any point, he could have said, no, that's enough. So moment by moment throughout that whole crucifixion, crucifixion process, he was choosing you and me. And then there's a verse. After he died, imagine the, the heartbreak in the disciples, the shame. They abandoned him. In his hour of need and shame, they abandoned him. They're hiding of fear. They think they're going to be arrested and killed. They don't know what's going to happen. The women are the ones that go to the, go to the tomb just to anoint his body. They think he's still dead. And uh, they don't find him dead, do they? He's alive. And there is a phrase in here that is just, it's so beautiful. I, every time I read it, it's just, it's so touching. So Jesus has this interchange with the, with the women at the tomb. And he says something really powerful. He gives them some instructions. He says, he says this in uh, Matthew 28, 10. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. And look at how he refers to the disciples. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. I can't think of too many instances where he called them his brothers. If you read back through the Gospels, he doesn't refer to them like that very much. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and I'll meet them there. 
first of him as his brothers. After the shame, they'd abandoned him. They turned their back on him. In his hour of need, they couldn't even pray with him in Gethsemane. They kept falling asleep. And after it all, he rises. He says, go and tell my brothers. He calls them brothers. Chosen again. And then... If this good news is going to go to the world, to every nation, we better be able to speak every language. Right? And so the, the encouraged, the energized, but confused disciples are in that upper room with one accord. And God chooses them by sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and now they can speak the languages of the people that are called by God that everlasting covenant. See, God's made a promise to you and me before the world ever began. If God couldn't save us, he never would have made us. And we have been chosen over and over and over again throughout the generations. You and I have been chosen. And so when we think of our value, we think, well, I'm worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for me. And our mind automatically goes to Calvary's cross. God gave his son. He paid with his son's life for me. But it's a lot more than that. Because not only did he choose to do that once by giving his life, throughout the generations of this world, since creation or before creation, he has been choosing our value, choosing you and me, over and over and over and over and over again. Chosen by him. You're just a little tiny speck on a speck on a speck on a speck out there in the vastness of the universe. But you have been chosen by the almighty, infinite creator over and over and over and over again. That's why... Scripture says, oh, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Chosen since before the foundation of the world. You weren't alive yet, but God knew you so intimately that he made a promise to you. So we have two things to do here. We need to soak this in and realize just how much we're loved and how much we're valued. Second thing is, we need to tell other people about it. Because he loves them like that too. Don't let us hoard it to ourselves like other people groups in the past. It's time that we let somebody else know how much God loves them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this everlasting promise, a covenant, a contract that we brought nothing to the table. It was all you. And so, Lord, today we thank you. We see our great value in you. You chose us over and over and over and over again. You love us. The value you've put on our lives is beyond comprehension. We mean so much to you. And so, Lord, as we think about that, may you mean so much to us. And, Lord, help us to realize that everyone we come in contact with is loved the same way. You've put unestimable value upon their lives, upon them as a person. 
So may we love them enough to tell them how much they're loved. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.